0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of that all might be edified discussions on servant leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, your host, and I'm so ecstatic to be here with a mentor, a teacher and a professor of mine, Dr. Josh Armstrong, who is an assistant professor of organizational leadership and faculty director of the comprehensive leadership program for undergraduate students at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. He holds a PhD in education and leadership from Michigan State University, a master's degree in higher education and student affairs from the University of Vermont, and an undergraduate degree in psychology from Whitworth College. Dr. Armstrong's research interests include development of intercultural competency, servant leadership, experiential education, and adaptive leadership. In addition to teaching, Dr. Armstrong provides leadership training for student leaders at Gonzaga and provides vision and student learning opportunities for a campus community of 5,300 students at Gonzaga. For the past 15 summers, Josh has led a summer program in Zambia, Africa with undergraduate students at Gonzaga and has always changes his life. Well, welcome, Dr. Armstrong. So glad you're here today. Thank you,
1: Keith. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, me too. And I referenced you once on the podcast already, maybe more, but definitely once. And it was with my first introduction to you, which was a team building class as part of my master's in organizational leadership at Gonzaga. And then we went on the following few days to do a trainer of team building. So we did a team building class, and then we did a follow-on course for actually building team building itself. And I remember just how phenomenal it was. That whole class was great. I still have many friends From those experiences of just a little over a week together, but we've been great friends ever since. And I really think that a couple of things you did set the tone for that there. And I'd love to start by talking about those two things. And one of them was this idea of a social contract where you really had the whole class work together to build a contract we could all agree to and own it and be part of it. And I remember one of the aspects of that contract is that we had to admit when we checked out of the curriculum or checked out Mm. for the day. We had to own it and say, hey, I'm sorry, but for the moment I've checked out, would you give me, give me a minute so I can check back in. And I remember just how that gave me the license to, to recognize when I was not fully engaged and then to get re-engaged. And then the second thing, which I just loved was, The sharing of an artifact, which you gave us some time to think about in discussion boards and on Blackboard before we got together and we had to bring our own artifact. The thing I referenced for sure on the podcast already is that there was a smoke jumper, you know, someone who we can all imagine as a real rugged, tough individual, you know, jumping out of an airplane into the heart of a fire is a brave thing to do. And he shared an artifact that was very personal and he started to get emotional and he apologized for getting emotional. And you, Dr. Armstrong said, don't apologize. You wouldn't apologize if you're laughing and you thanked him for actually sharing his emotion with us so that we could learn more about him. And it just really opened the space up for us to be vulnerable, to learn and to grow. And I really just appreciated those two aspects. And so I was wondering what prompts you to do things like that or how can you give any advice of how we can implement those aspects into our everyday life.
1: Yeah. Well, Keith, I mean, that was, you know, a number of years ago that we shared that classroom space. So I'm glad that that still resonates with you. You know, in fact, during this pandemic, I feel like part of the pause and the space that was created for me to do a little more internal reflection about who I am and how I lead really was geared towards this idea of how do, how do emotions show up? How do they show up in leadership? And I really enjoyed Permission to Feel by Mark Brackett. He runs Yale's Center for Emotional Intelligence and really urges us all to be like emotional scientists. Like emotions are data, data gives us information. And so we need to be attuned to that as leaders. I would say particularly now as we're coming back out of this keep our fingers crossed out of this pandemic and and maybe in a really different place. So yeah, it's it's funny that you should say that that was your memory because I was just in a faculty meeting yesterday and somebody else said something I learned from you, Josh, was that this idea that we don't apologize for laughter and why would we apologize for tears? Because both those are human emotions. That's who we are. And I want to create space. And I would say Both the things you just referenced, the artifact activity and uh, the full value contract, this this idea of a contract, really are about creating psychological safety and trust. It's like we've got to have enough trust in the room to be able to start doing this kind of work where somebody's going to share something that meaningful. And part of that trust is. For the connections that we have, for the sense of belonging, for the way that we can actually work. But part of that trust allows us to be able to have the kind of conflicts that we want to have. And we don't just stay in artificial harmony, but we move towards, you know, the kind of conflict that's really productive for teams. And so, yeah, I think part of that, you know, those two experiences that you said is who I, I am and who I want to be. I feel like my love language is just connecting people in terms of trying to find, you know, two people who I feel like they should be friends. Like I, that, I take such great joy in those moments. And I want to create spaces where people really get to actually have real true connections. Like a three-day immersion on Gonzaga's campus should produce the kind of relationships that you're talking about and still connected to. And so I'm so, so glad that that's part of your experience.
0: Yeah, so much such wonderful things. And we could spend hours just dissecting the things you said there. So just some wonderful content. I love this idea of emotional scientists. And I really just want to kind of dwell on that for a moment, because I think that intuitively, we can recognize that takes work. You know, we talk about emotions can be difficult, science can be difficult. So connecting the two can be very difficult. So how do we really do two things with that? How do we Do it to ourselves. How do we, you know, first of all, do that self-assessment of scientific work and our emotions, and then also learn to apply that to others in a way to recognize what their emotions are, not the projection of our own emotions.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, one of the concepts that we teach at Gonzaga comes out of uh, adaptive leadership, which I would say, like along with servant leadership, is really the way that I like to think about the way that I practice leadership. So for me, servant leadership is the heart. And we can talk about that, but the head and the hands, I think, often is around this adaptive work. How does change happen? And there's a phrase, um, how do we get onto the balcony that you might be familiar with just from Ron Heifetz? And so that balcony work is really deeply connected to this idea of how do I notice what's going on within myself? And man, you bring me like um joy and love and care, and I'm just like all over those emotions. You bring me sadness and anger. Those are harder emotions for me to want to even acknowledge in myself, even, you know, like, man, I'm feeling a little anxious right now about this meeting and I'm walking in there and having to say some hard things. How do I regulate what's going on? Get on the balcony enough to recognize like, okay, so I need to be like, I need to be confident here. I need to be, I need to believe in my message. And I also have to be honest with myself, like I'm feeling a little bit uneasy about this. I think those are all good things for leaders to be aware of, because honestly, I don't believe that people who are uh, involved in this leadership interaction, they don't want their leaders to have all the answers all the time. You know what I mean? Like, do we want to follow people who know where they're going? But I think being able to come back and acknowledge like, man, this is a really hard decision for me. And this is something that I've spent a lot of time struggling with. And I want to invite your feedback into that. Those are all ways that we feel connected to to decisions, to the movement that's happening, to um, being able to justify these decisions to the people that we're working with. And so that involves us being really attuned to how we're feeling. I think in my own life, even just in the last few years, I I felt like there was a, a phonetic pace of it. That if you and I saw each other and you'd say like Josh, how you doing? I'd be like, oh, I'm fine, but I don't. I wouldn't have really checked in with myself. I would just like it's just like response. Like I'm fine, I'm good. Now I'm I'm practicing more. Like you know I'm having a I'm having a good day, but we're dealing with some hard things right now personally. I'm you know I'm, maybe I'm feeling a little bit uneasy about the direction of our department or this part of my work at the university. I just feel like as a leader, I'm I'm more in tune to what that feels like. And even how I carry that in my body and how that impacts those that I'm, I'm in community with. And so I think the pandemic has given me some space to do some of that internal work. And I think it's so important for us as leaders to not just separate that piece of who we are when we're leading.
0: I agree so much. And sometimes we need to model Willingness to talk about how we're truly feeling so other people around us feel that way. I was thinking as you were talking about this wonderful officer I worked with in the Mexican Navy while I was there the last six months, Miss Praises, Ana Praises. And she would always, when she walked by my office, yell, Hi, friend. And then whenever I would ask her how she was doing, she would always 100% of the time give me an honest answer Oh, Mm -hmm. not so good. I'm really tired. Or, you know, just not feeling great today. Or, why isn't it Friday? Or you know, and she'd tell me when it was great, and she was excited. But I just loved that she was always so honest with where her day was when I asked. You know, not treating it as a social cue to say hi, but a real check-in moment. And I think mm-hmm. you need to model that behavior with people sometimes, appropriately, because you don't always want to push people away or or be the office e or, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Woe is me, but. I think there's some opportunity there to show people it's okay to kind of, as you said, to own those emotions and let people know, as we did in our full value contract, hey, I'm not completely here at the moment. Would you come back in 30 minutes so I can be present and things Mm -hmm. like that?
1: Yeah, that full value contract. I mean, I really believe that all of us have expectations for teams. I just think most often they go unsaid. You know, they're in our, our conscious and our subconscious and we haven't given voice to them. So any group that you're a part of, any team that you're a part of, you have these expectations for each other. But the full value contract is the opportunity for us. And I would say, you know, in that situation, I'm the person in authority. I'm your faculty member who's given you a grade. So I'm almost not contributing to that at all because I really want it to be owned by the class. I have hopes for sure, just like all of us do, right? I want this class to be an honest space, that we're having real conversations, that we wrestle in good ways, that there's some energy that keeps us engaged in the learning. But I really want that to be, you know, verbalized and committed to by the students themselves. So I may say something like, you know, let's, let's assume best intentions with each other just to sort of get the ball rolling. But then after that, I want the group to produce that document. And then I think it's almost more damage if you produce a really thoughtful document and you never pull it out again, you know? And so in that class, you'll remember like, boy, just before every session, almost we're pulling it back out and we're asking like, so how do we do? And did we, are we living up to who we think we're, we're becoming right now? And it's okay if we're not, let's just give voice to that, you know, and let's try to do better. And, you know, in the places that we are, let's celebrate those moments.
0: No, I remember very vividly those check-in times and that they were honest evaluations. And I think because we set such a good tone with our artifact sharing, we were real open with each other. And I remember even myself saying, someone calling me out and be like, Keith, you okay? I'm like, hey, I got to admit, I just, I got a little over, you know, as, as we'd say with babies, right? Too, too many uh, sensors or sensory overload, right? I had too much mm-hmm. sensory overload. So I, I just, for a moment, I, I was in another place in my mind. I checked out, give me a minute, I'll be right back. And, but I remember being able to say that and nobody being like, oh, that Keith." you know, and we could own it and come back and, but people not, not only that, but they would really kind of, we paid attention to our own emotions, but we paid attention to each other. And I think there was a couple instances where, you know, some activities got a little intense because team building activities, they should, they should do that. They should get people, you know, figuring out how to, as we say, right. The, the forming storming and norming, you Mm know, so that storming phase, there's, there's a little bit of bad weather. So how do you get through that and navigate? And if we're not checking in with each other, you don't necessarily get out of storming into that forming a great team.
1: Yeah, I've, I've so um, appreciated both that framework and then the work of Lencioni, which it's like, that's, you know, the five dysfunctions of a team is such a classic piece of literature that we'll read and like have as part of that. But more recently, I've really enjoyed this, like a short video that Lencioni does where he's talking about that conflict continuum, like how many of our organizations are just hanging on to the side of the pool that's just artificial harmony, because we don't want to go to conflict because conflict feels like destructive conflict, you know, but if we don't take some steps towards that and get a little bit closer, even knowing that sometimes that conflict's going to be maybe a little bit destructive, and then we're going to learn how to repair that. And that repair is so important for groups. And he even talks about the scar tissue that happens when you have a repair, like, boy, that was too much. And now we know how to get over that. But having us be more uh, comfortable with conflict, which I think only can happen after we've developed that psychological safety and that belonging and that trust. And that's where things like that artifact, like bring me something that's meaningful, that tells us who you are, that you... You might even grab out of a um, a burning house. You know, we don't recommend you run in there, but this is something meaningful to you. And so in those moments, I'd say it's okay for people to bring emotion. I actually feel like I don't think I've ever taught a class where people haven't. You know, it's just like, and even in situations where you think like, wow, this person given uh, their profession and their experience, I don't know, are they really going to be able to go there? Oh my gosh. I mean, those are the people who like are bringing something from their grandparent or something that's just really meaningful. And then I think something switches in us and we see them with a different view for their humanity and for the empathy that they bring to us.
0: I totally agree. And I saw it in action. And if you would send me a link to that video, because I'll share it in the show notes. I think it's great. And, uh, and then we'll do a post on the blog to share that video with everybody, so they can mm-hmm. re- can watch it and reference it. I think it'll be a great addition to the show, and I just look forward to seeing it myself. You know, one thing that I learned from that class, I actually was part of a team to do these massive oil spill response exercises, modeled after the Valdez oil spill incident in Alaska. And the team, there was many competing interests on the team. And I actually was recently out of that class. And so those things came back to my mind and I did a lot of those things to bring that team together. And you're right. When we started to see each other as individuals and we started to do things together, when we started to learn about each other's families, we got work done. We started to stop being so antagonistic or worrying that their priorities didn't match my priorities. We started to find common ground and work together. And we just need that modeled so much in our world today in such a, So many things are pushing us farther and farther apart. And as we come out of this pandemic, I'm hoping that we can not go back to the way things are, that we can recognize that there's a lot of emotion out in the air, in our society, in the world. That's why this social justice is such a charged issue is because it's very meaningful. It's very emotion-filled to people, and we can't just dismiss it. We have to find, like you said, that way to get into the uncomfortable space and have those conversations. I personally, going back to recognizing yourself, I am a conflict avoider, just naturally. I grew up in a very violent home environment, a very violent area. So I tend to naturally not want anything to do with conflict because it, it's, a, I have a lot of scar tissue going back mm-hmm. to your other thought of when it comes to conflict. But I've learned over time when I'm pulling away because of my own issues that's when I need to step in because I'm not giving my full, I'm not doing what we did in the full value contract. I'm not bringing my full best self to the conversation, to the team. And so I have to find a way through, or I have to acknowledge that I can't and tell the team I'm not available at the moment, you know, give Hmm. me some time. And so, and that's helped me recognize how to, to get through that appropriately and to manage that. But how do we you know, bring people together to create this space when so many things are pushing us farther and farther apart.
1: Yeah. And as you mentioned, I mean, I think we're in a really interesting space right now. So, I mean, when we're recording this, it's the end of April, 2022, and we are just, you know, as a country trying to figure out, you know, what just happened in the last two years. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and I think there are leaders who are just longing for March, 2020, or yeah, March, 2020 again, you know, and I think, That would be a huge mistake. I I really believe this is an opportunity to reset what work looks like. And I think one of the things that we've learned in this pandemic is that we need to check in with our with people who we work with in more authentic ways. I mean, I maybe it's just at a university, but I hear it from other companies that I work with. People are even asking, like, "Tell me about your mental health," or checking in, or recognizing that this has been a trying time. I mean, for some people going and and having a hybrid work situation or working from home has just been exactly what they loved, you know, but I'd say for a lot of people, there's some challenges of, you know, lack of connection. And, and it is hard sometimes to read people on a zoom call, you know, like, There's conflicts that we're having that I think are often the result of us not quite knowing how to read relationally and emotionally what people are really bringing to that, and not having the kind of trust. And that trust is hard to build when you're not in the same room. I took that same team building class that you took and sort of engineered it for a virtual space. And I, at first, I was like, I kind of went kicking and screaming. I'm like, I don't want to do. I mean, I just love the the interactions of being together, but I felt you know, strongly enough that people are going to continue to be building teams virtually. And and you know what, Keith, like we did the artifact. People are literally all over the country, 20 of us on a Zoom screen. And there still were tears and laughter. I mean, it's like, I think people long to connect. They long to be able to hear stories that relate to who they are and and learn more about who you are. And so I think that there's ways to do this. And I do think it, particularly in this time, I think we need to be more aware of like, what's that trust? What's that belonging? What's that holding environment that we can create? Not just because we love the the touchy feely crap, but because we really want to know that that's the kind of environment that's going to produce the kind of outcomes that all of us want as leaders.
0: Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful thoughts. And as you were mentioning those I thought to myself you know a lot of times as a conflict avoider this resonates with me at least a lot of times when I avoid things or I don't own that there's conflict it doesn't mean there's no conflict or that it's going to go away sometimes that makes the situation worse when we don't address it because silence is not consent that you know Mm -hmm. we hear that phrase a lot that's not true and so if we're not actively addressing the issues at hand then we're not getting the buy-in that we need to build the best teams or to bring the best of ourselves to those teams. And I think you're right. Even there's opportunities to supplement what we do in more of a virtual setting. It's, we don't have to go backwards. We don't have to stay as we are. There's a way to take the best of all the things we're offered and merge them together so that we can bring the most out of our team members in the way that speaks to them. Like I'm horrible for a remote work schedule. And I've been really actively trying to, empathize and teach myself what others have gone through during the pandemic because as a as someone who specializes in emergency response my life's been very different than most people's i never stopped going to work i was part of the our area mm. command to manage resources for the coast guard in 26 states to get make sure they had the ppe the n95 masks all the stuff they needed to do and that we were really very sensitive that we didn't want to steal any masks from healthcare. So we were moving our excess around the country as fast as we possibly could to those that needed it. So as soon as we found a need, we'd move it from someone that had an excess. So we never had to order stuff. So we didn't have to put a strain on the system. We really, it was kind of amazing to watch. That's not usually what we do in the government. We just order stuff, but we really got innovative and we tried to be adaptive. And because of that, I never stopped going to work. And then Four months into COVID, we rolled into the busiest hurricane season of my life. And we had almost eight massive storms that hit the Gulf Coast, and I worked almost all of them. And Mm. and then I also worked a big car carrier ship that flipped on its side in in Georgia. And so I, all throughout, I've been traveling. I went to 26 states and nine states in Mexico in the two years everybody else has been mostly working from home. So, So my life is very different, but I enjoy that but, and I should, I should also caveat, I've done it safely. I got vaccinated. I've been very mindful of my surroundings. This, we traveled only when we needed to, and we were very limited is because more importantly, we knew that if we went down, we'd have to take someone else out of their own home. So if we got, we were very cautious about our interactions. And I actually, I was kind of Asked my family to take an extra burden on themselves to self quarantine themselves more often. So, even as we started to come out of strict quarantines, I asked my family not to have friends over as much to do different things because I was like, this is the nature of my work. I have to be available. So, it's, you know, there's all those things, but then, you know, times as many people as there are are the experiences. And so, yeah, if we don't address that, if we don't, we're never going to learn from all the good that we can.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's probably not helpful to think that every single person got to set up their own home offices and do that because, I mean, there were some people who never did stop working and their life, you know, continued. But I think collectively, we know the pain of a nation trying to figure out a pandemic, you know, like even though our responses were probably as varied as the places that we live, I do think that we know the stress and that what we've been carrying. And I think again, again, being able to use that in the workplace is really helpful. You know, you you said something about like avoiding conflict. And I think even in that team building class, one of the things I I like to tell students is like, conflict that's not addressed, doesn't dissipate, it just goes under the surface so that it can pop back out again, most often, right? You know what I mean? So if if we don't deal with something, it's not like it goes away, it just manifests somewhere else. And so having the courage, you know, and I think, gosh, this is one of the things I've been thinking and learning about even with just like r- racial reconciliation coming out of George Floyd, all of a sudden as a country, we're having to recognize the roles that you know each one of us can play with the different systems that we're a part of. And to not actually have those conversations with our friends and to be thinking about that doesn't mean it just goes away. I mean, I think it's it's still there. We need to figure out what's our role in the world and how do we as leaders be more mindful of all the identities of people who show up and some of which don't feel as included and connected to what we're doing. And so that's not always framed as just a conflict, but I think it's a, it's an opportunity that we're not always using as leaders that really we can be more intentional about.
0: Yeah. I was just looking at your bio again, your development of intercultural competency is how you put it. And I love that thought. And when I was at Gonzaga, one of the things, that, the themes that I came across as I was doing the different courses, is I really developed a love for researching how to build community in a multicultural environment, and and I'm just, it's so challenging, and too often we want to build our version of community, and we're quick to eliminate aspects of that multicultural proponent that don't fit our vision, and when we do that, we can never build true community.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I'm I'm invested in the experience of our students who. Many of them don't look or resemble me. I, um, my own daughter is a, we adopted from Zambia. And so I'm, I'm feeling like a sense of, you know, trying to use my own positionality as, as somebody who's a faculty member and a leader and a, a white male to try to make her experience in schools and in this world better. And yet I think as leaders, we have to be honest about the blind spots we have. And certainly I still have them, of you know, not recognizing the places where even not intentionally, I can, I can create harm and and just being open to that feedback. I think that's been a challenge and something I've been trying to learn in my own leadership. It's just like feedback is opportunity for growth. Like, I think my first response is like feedback is a chance for me to be defensive. (laughs) You know, like I need to like, no, actually that's not what I meant. But I think just listening to others and hearing what they have to say and be like, yeah, you know, Fortunately, that's a great point. You know, I think that's a learning on my part. And gosh, I really do appreciate you bringing that to my attention because I want to learn about that, even though it doesn't feel that great to have to be still learning in my life, you know, so.
0: No, I totally agree with that. And too often we just want to surround ourselves with voices that we know will give us recognition for what we want to do. And I think you're right. Sometimes we have to recognize those blind spots, or even when going back to that emotional science, and when I'm seeking out people because I know they're just going to evaluate it to, so I can move on to something else, then that might not be the best person to evaluate what I'm looking at. And so I might want to rethink and go to a different person that might give me honest feedback so that I can make it even better. Because there's some really smart people out in the world, way smarter than me, and most of the time, they don't even get things right on their first go. So if we just try to get things done and move on, we're not really bringing out the best in ourselves ourselves. And I recognize that there's deadlines to meet in all organizations, but that's why it's more incumbent upon ourselves to intentionally manufacture the space that allows us to invite other people to critique and build the best products and versions of each of us.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the um, the books I've been using most recently is Erica Kirschwin's Rituals Roadmap. And part of her idea is that, you know, sometimes corporate team building or having an offsite for a half day. I mean, sometimes that can be helpful and we can practice some of the work that happened in our class in terms of, you know, sharing artifacts, setting expectations. But she, what she argues is that as leaders, what we need to do really is to build rituals within the fabric of our work life. Because I mean, I mean, I I think a lot of us feel like we have a lot of important work that's just right here in the front of our face. And for you to take me away for two days, to do something feels actually like a distraction. Whereas there are ways to build in. How do we develop safety? How do we practice conflict? How do we do this into the rituals of onboarding somebody into like the kind of lunch space that we have where we're connecting there, the, the intentional ways that we can continue to develop our organization. So I've appreciated that. Uh, Yeah. Since you and I are looking at each other, it's this book here and I can send you the contact on it, but she says the human way to transform everyday routines into workplace magic. And, um, I've found this to be a helpful guide and students have really enjoyed reading this recently. And she just produced it and published it just as the pandemic was coming on. And so she went back and rewrote like a a preface for rituals during COVID-19. So it is really current. I think it's a 2021 uh, publication. And so something that maybe some of your listeners haven't quite got their hands on yet.
0: Yeah, super relevant too. And you know, it's interesting because many of us are creatures are of habit. So it's so true. If you help me build a ritual in that's going to connect us deeper, I'll actually learn a lot more from that. It'll become a habit. It'll become a way that I connect deeper with people. And I, I'm excited. I'm going to read that book. And well, partly because you've never given me a bad book recommendation, but also because it sounds like perfect for where we're at right now in communities and societies to really build together, to take this opportunity of coming back to work coming back more fully and whatever that looks like. I just like Dr. Armstrong, I hope we don't go back to that way things were. I hope we move forward continuously and learn from what we've learned over the last two years. But as we start to come more and more in person, how do we integrate better? How do we work together more fully? And so that's my challenge for this episode this week. I usually wait towards the end, but I think now's a perfect time. Think about those rituals that you do. And if you don't do any rituals, think about how you can include rituals in your workspace, with your teams, with your families, even all the people around you, how can you bring them closer together so that you can have more meaningful conversations. And I also think that goes back to what you were saying, you know, not avoiding the conflict and having the deeper conversations as we do that, as we make it a part of our everyday life, it becomes easier to have those conversations. We start to understand each other's artifacts more often. And so we can go back to those. And We know, and I know you're big on stories, so we can know more of the stories of each of our lives. Like I shared a little bit of a story about why I'm a conflict avoider. If We know more of those things about each other. We understand that sometimes if I'm off-putting to you, it might not be because of something you did or said. I might be just in a different space. And so we can help recognize our behavior a little better.
1: Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like one of the rituals that I've, as a person of faith, like finding time for prayer has been important. I think finding time to be, even practice mindfulness has been important, which maybe is a little different than prayer in some ways. Cause I think in mindfulness, you're just trying to like almost empty yourself a bit just to be open. And I think, man, that's a tough practice, actually. I mean, I feel like I spent half my pandemic just feeling like I suck at being mindful, (laughs) you know, but I think it's such a great ritual for us because it gives us a space again, to be noticing what's going on in my life. How do I bring that groundedness to my work? And, you know, I think I can draw on that strength and the times that I feel like the conflicts that we're having to navigate as people. So.
0: Yeah. I love that. I'm also a man of faith and I, there's power in that process of, you know, whether you're praying or mindfulness or whatever that looks like for you or meditating, there's power in that process of really just having those, conversations having those thoughts and I love that you shared that ritual and it's wonderful and I hope that other people start to think about those rituals and one of the rituals I do in emergency management which people usually love me for I think they remember me most for this is you know I've grown up you know where I usually an incident commander or a deputy incident commander a lot of these big incidents or at least a planning section chief and so I do a lot of stuff and what I always have observed as I've grown up in emergency management is people never take time to really eat. They're always so busy. So they're not nourishing themselves. And if you, Mm -hmm. you, we all have physical limitations, we go back to what we learned in the program, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we have these limitations. If we're not meeting those needs, we're only so available to the rest of the world around us. And so what I always do is I make it a point to go get lunch, I put a break in my day after our meetings while I know the team's working on all the reports. And I could, there's always things you can be doing, but I make it a point to plan a lunch trip where I go get the team lunch and I bring it back. And I'm a foodie, so I usually know where the good food spots are. And since we often go to the same places, I've got it all mapped out. And you just the look on people's faces when you bring back food for them, it's like you. You brought them a puppy for Christmas, if, if they like yeah. up, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So going back to Erica Kesslin's book, I mean, she's got a chapter called Eating, Rituals for the Most Important Meal of the Day, the One We Share. And uh, yeah, I mean, in many work teams, I mean, you know, you can leverage more like, hey, we're, we do have to eat, but is there a way to be more intentional about what that looks like? Um, not to just like load up lunch meetings, but to actually create spaces for people to continue connecting in ways that are authentic, that'll actually feed into the kind of work that we want to do. But yeah, that's a great example. Thank you for sharing for the ways that you uh, use food to nourish people's, you know, work and soul.
0: Yeah, I love it. And, you know, as we as I'm planning my retirement. It's funny because one of the big jokes is, well, we know there's going to be good food there is what the big joke is. And you better believe there's going to be good food there. So, (laughs) well, what else do you do to kind of draw out the stories of people's lives or to use stories as examples to help teach people these wonderful principles that you teach on a regular basis?
1: Yeah, gosh. I mean, so in doing workshops on servant leadership. I really want, you know, I was just with some University of Washington med students last week and just talking about, you know, as a physician, you're going to be seen in a position of leadership, but that doesn't mean you practice leadership. And part of that practice means understanding what it means to be a servant, to both serve others. And also I, I want physicians and doctors to feel like they can be served by their patients too. Like to have that be reciprocal, which I think that's the harder thing. Many of them are probably coming to med school because they want to heal, they want to be a part of that, they want to be the one who has the answers because they're usually pretty sharp. But you know, I want them to also be able to receive. And so part of it is I I tell a story about you know being in Zambia. This is the first year I was there. I was out running, which I love to do, and wherever I travel, I love to run. It's a great way to explore. And in Zambia, I feel like especially in these rural areas like me as some Western white guy out would jogging like people are like are you exercising like who are you running from you know (laughs) got these like troops of kids who are like following you like Joshua you know but uh you know I'm out running and I run into this young man named Robinson and he understands that we're there Gonzaga's there to do some classes and I invite him into our classroom and he's like oh I actually I've I've really got to work I can't afford to come take your classes but I'd love for you to stop by so you know maybe a day or two later I stumble upon his the shop that he works in in the market and I wasn't even really looking for Robinson but as soon as I walk in, he's behind the counter. He's like, oh, you've come. This is so great. And we sit down and really proceed to have like the next two weeks of lunches together. And and it, and the roles really started to, sh- to shift. I wasn't professor and him student. It was just two people trying to understand each other and their culture. And it was just really beautiful. And at one point he um, came... And found the place that we were staying. We were in this Catholic convent. And my students got me and said, Robinson's here to see you. And he had a gift for me. And it was a a chicken, a live chicken. And it was actually the chicken that his aunt and uncle, his parents had passed from the HIV and AIDS crisis. The chicken that his his uncle had given him when he graduated from high school. I just think, and I, you know, knowing that a little bit, knowing the place that he was in, it was hard for me to receive that. And yet I also knew from my cultural mentors there that not receiving that gift would have been such an insult to him. And so here I am trying to teach him a bit about servant leadership. And he is modeling that idea of being a servant to others and giving from a place that hurts sometimes that's really meaningful. And I think the lesson for me in that too is like, man, I I love to be on the serving side, I also have to be able to receive in places where I serve because that creates the kind of relationship that actually creates change. It's not that healthy for me to show up to a place like Zambia or really anywhere in my life and think that I'm the one who has all the answers. You know, saviorism in developing countries is a real issue for us because I think even with good intentions, we show up to these spaces. And so I think about Robinson and thank him for that lesson. And I, I feel like I'm still practicing ways to actually receive in those places that I serve
0: that's such a beautiful story thanks for sharing that and i like to tell people all the time if nobody allowed them to serve them none of us could grow from being servant leaders so we all have to participate in allowing others to serve us or there would be no one to serve and we would have no opportunities and so but it is hard it's very challenging for us that always want to go help people to allow others to serve us and especially in a way like that with all the implications you hinted at and even mentioned and You know, I think about it when I was down in Mexico, one of the things we see, even in, you know, defense cooperation or all the different work we do around the world to build up governments and do things, you're right. Like if we approach this from, I want you to look like the United States, we're always going to fail because those countries aren't the United States. They have different cultures. They have different people. They have different influences. They have different laws. They have different capacities. And so what I would do is I would talk to them about well, this is how we do it in the United States, but what's your goal that you want to achieve? And I go, because this is how we do it for this goal, but what's your goal and how does that marry? And then what now what do your resources look like? What do you, how do you envision it? What are your regulations? How do we now put this into practice in a way where you can take your resources, your goals, and maybe my training from the United States, and I can gear it towards helping you achieve those means. And I seem to have a little bit more success than people that just come in and would be like, Oh, well, you need to do it the way, you know, here's our law, you can marry our law or do this or, you know, build a training just like ours. It just never works because there's too many differences to build something exactly the same. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've met so many incredible leaders in Zambia. And I sometimes think, like, you know, if they showed up to the US, I mean, let's just say, like, they showed up and said, like, disaster relief, hurricanes. Yeah, sure. Here's what you guys aren't doing right. Well, I mean, if you've never lived that way, we wouldn't expect that they'd come in and tell us how to do that. And yet we will show up to other places sometimes and have that same mentality. And so at at Gonzaga in that program and in others, um, we really try to practice this ethic of accompaniment. And that means that like really the best thing that we can do. And I feel like actually I'll share with you an article that I wrote with Larry Spears, who's one of the foremost scholars on servant leadership about accompaniment and servant leadership and how those interact. But, you know, this idea of accompaniment means that like what we're really looking forward to is how do we help Zambians stand on their own two feet? How do we come alongside? And just as you've said, there's some expertise that we can we can share but how do we get out of the way and there's there was this moment a few years back where we had some Gonzaga engineering students who had spent some time before we came to Zambia really studying how thermodynamics happen how do we create a better stove how do we use you know the best local resources to create the most efficient stove for Zambians and so we we show up we've got a couple weeks of workshops we're working with students there and these Zambians said like oh gosh can we we need some more bricks so um Myself and the Zags, we hop in our Land Cruiser, we drive down to the river, we pick up these bricks that they formed there and we put them in our vehicle. And when we come back, you know, as I walked up, I I saw it in their eyes, actually. Like as soon as we had gotten out of the way, they created a more effective stove because now they had the local knowledge and the knowledge that we brought them. And as soon as we got out of the way... They had created something and you could just see it. Like they were switched on. They knew this was going to be something that's going to be important for their community. So it's that sort of ethic of service and accompaniment that I want to practice in my time in Zambia. But I actually want to practice it here in my work. Like, is it helpful for me to think that I have all the answers as a leader? Like, who else am I not listening to and bringing into that work? So,
0: yes, wonderful, beautiful thoughts. And, you know, as I think about those, really. That is the essence of servant leadership, helping everyone become the best versions of themselves, which in turn helps everything to become the best version of itself. And that includes us as individuals who might be there to teach you as a professor, me as an incident commander. If I'm there as a leader, I have something to learn to become an even better version of myself. And if I don't take that approach that you just mentioned, and I do come in thinking I have all the answers, I'm never going to be the best version of myself, because I'm always going to stop at that comfort zone you taught us so well of and not jump up to the growth zone. And I'm not even going to get near the panic zone because I'm just sitting right at comfortable too far. And so I don't test those limitations. Well, I think we're definitely going to have to have you back on another episode, Dr. Armstrong. And I'd love to share that article and maybe even come back and talk about it even more. I think you have a wealth of knowledge. I'm just overjoyed at this conversation so far. And I just love everything that you do. If you don't know much about Dr. Armstrong, definitely read his publications. Follow him in the work that he does at Gonzaga. And the amazing work that they do in Zambia is just one of many places that Gonzaga does incredible programs and outreach for. They really do take that Jesuit philosophy of being holistic and serving to a level that i didn't know existed in academia, and I appreciate it. So thanks so much. And any thoughts to close us out with before we wrap up today?
1: Oh, yeah, Keith, man, I just, uh, I'm so thankful to get this time with you. And I am just... I mean, I don't want to say proud because that makes me feel like I'm responsible for what you've done, but I'm just like in awe of the work that you've been able to take from your time at Gonzaga and apply that to really making our country better through your work in the Coast Guard and you know internationally. And so um, it's such a pleasure to see the way that like we've got these ideas and we've got this theory and we're presenting it in these unique spaces on our campus. And then to see you live that out is so satisfying. And this podcast, I mean, you've got some great leaders that are sharing. And so just, it's a pleasure to be a part of it. And I look forward to the next conversation we get to have.
0: Thanks so much. And thanks everyone for joining us. Please like, rate, review the podcast, share it with as many people as you want and reach out to me. Tell me what you thought. I love to hear from people. I love, as we talked about, to learn where my blind spots are, to get even better, to become a better version of myself. So please let me know. And also if you have people you think would be great to add to this conversation, I would love to help amplify their voice in any way that I can and have a wonderful day.